Electricast. With the Baker's Plus Card, it's easy to get lower than low prices for the win. Earn fuel points on every purchase and save up to a dollar a gallon at the pump. The Baker's Plus Card. All you do is win. Big, big savings. Sign up now at bakersplus.com and start saving. Baker's. Fresh for everyone. Savings may vary by state. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your favorites with the buy five or more, save a dollar each sale. Simply buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with your card. Baker's. Fresh for everyone. Hello, and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show, featuring Jason Zook. In uncertain times, we must change our focus and priorities. This show will highlight social justice issues with the goal of expanding minds and increasing unity, love, and mutual respect for ourselves and our planet. We support the Black Lives Matter movement, Our show aspires to promote social spirituality, which simply means that by coming together, we can solve any of our problems, including the goal of bringing an end to all forms of hate, discrimination, bias, or oppression. We must protect our environment, reform our criminal justice system, and protect every citizen from police brutality. When we come together, it becomes possible to bridge the gaps that plague our society and divide us from within. We the people means everyone. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show. This is Jason Zook. It's a great pleasure I have the opportunity of presenting special guest Kate Wolinga to the show today. Podcaster, forensic psychologist, mother and storyteller. Our guest is a forensic psychologist and story collector with a history of working in prison, court, locked psychiatric facilities, and emergency rooms. The most important certainty she carries from all of her time working with inmates, patients, and third parties is that the only real difference between us and them is who carries the key to leave. And that everything we experience from crippling anxiety to people committing murder is not always rational, but there is a logic to it. And Kate seeks to make things understandable to those she works with. Our guest is also the host of the Ignorance Was Bliss podcast, which addresses topics including society and culture, health and fitness, mental health, and others as it relates to a show about how we become who we are. Almost anything anything can seem normal. And are we really ready to know what the truth holds? It's a great pleasure. I I welcome Kate to the show. Welcome to the show, Kate. Thank you. How are you doing? Great, great. I, I just, it's just such a great thing to be able to do these kind of things, to have you on and a fellow podcaster. And I guess I, I get very excited when we get to connect like this. And I wanted to ask you, how did you get into podcasting? <laughs> well, so I have worked as a forensic psychologist. I'm trained and in, in the field. But then in 2014, I broke my back. Terrible idea. Don't do that. And so I went on disability and have been on disability full-time since then. I spent a couple of years feeling sorry for myself and moping and hating everything. And then at the end of 2017, so I have four kids. I've been married for now 21 years. And Congratulations. And my, my, my father moved in with us at the end of 2017. And suddenly, like, I... It just was, I felt like I was surrounded by people that needed my attention at all times, but never as myself. 
You know what I mean? Like I, I no longer felt like I had a leading role in my own life, that I was just serving as supportive actor for the kids need to go to uh, you know, a, a practice or my husband wants to talk about his day at work or my father just, he was in a, a rough space. And I, I, I had sympathy for that, but I also needed him to stop talking to me. Mm. And so after like two months or so, I, it was on New Year's Day of 2018, I went up to my husband and depending on who's telling the story, either I very gently tapped him on the shoulder or I grabbed him by the shirt collar. They said, I'm going to start a podcast. <laughs> and being a smart man, he said, okay, <laughs> do you need anything from me? It, it, because I just, I literally felt like I was losing my voice that I, I wasn't myself anymore. I wasn't speaking for myself. And I listened to a lot of podcasts, a lot of true crime podcasts where they would ask these questions like, what does it mean to be found not guilty by reason of insanity? Or what is schizophrenia anyway? Or why would he say this in court or whatever? And those were all questions that I knew the answer to. So I thought, well, I'll start a podcast that effectively answers these questions. I'll do like 20 episodes and that'll be it. <laughs> This and is here we are. Later. <laughs> I'm I'm very close to 400 episodes in, and it started very true crime in nature. And I found, I mean, that's fascinating, and that's where my heart lies. But it also can be kind of a a difficult community at times because there are people who approach the topics with sensitivity and with care, and then there are other people who want to drink and call the bad guy bad names, and that's not my thing. It's important to me that we remember that everybody involved is somebody's child, somebody's father, somebody's partner, somebody's neighbor. And the vast majority of crimes, these people didn't wake up one morning and be like, okay, I'm going to kill somebody today. No. Yeah. You know? And so I, I mean, mental health is such a big part of that, that people don't take, it, take into appreciation, right? They don't realize that when someone's mentally afflicted, it's like a physical injury you can't see, and you have to learn to understand the mental health and be and be open to it to really grasp it and not let it side rail things or you know misunderstand things. I like I liked when you you just said that being aware of of true crime stuff and, and the nature of it. I want to ask you when you got into the true crime stuff because of your background as a forensic psychologist, you you have the training. You I think you indicated before we started that you've even testified in court before in your prior life. And so when you came into this with that background and you started looking at the field of what you're working with, and what was your impression of other people who try to cover true crime in their own shows? If you've listened to them compared to what you do. I mean, I listen to them extensively and I applaud anybody's effort, you know, podcasting's work. You know, and anybody who wants to put that kind of work into something that they love, that's fine. It's just not always for me. Like, I listen, I still listen to a lot of true crime. Uh, some of my friends are just masterful at research and empathy and trying to find different versions of the truth, right? Which is what nonfiction really ought to be rather than humor. I mean, you can use humor, I guess that's fine, but again, carefully and sensitively. And so it's more important to me that there be a lot of choices. I don't like censorship. And so 
there are shows that I dislike personally that I won't listen to, but I don't want them taken down because they're somebody else's favorite show. And there are podcasts out there that have gotten people through the pandemic and there are things where I'm like, I literally can't listen to two consecutive minutes of that show without wanting to scream or throw something. But if it got you through a day, then bless them. <laughs> I understand. I understand. And so, so like six months in, after I started, I was realizing that like, this is not, it, it has the potential for tox, tox, toxicity in different ways. And I don't love that. And so I'm going to pull the lens back a little bit and I'm still going to go back into true crime. And I do pretty regularly still cover true crime topics, but rather than trying to do like a narrative true crime style, it's more about, let me just talk to people. Like that's what I really missed was just this chance to just talk to somebody and connect. And so I stopped calling myself true crime and I just, I collect people's stories. And if they want to talk about themselves, if they want to talk about an event or a topic, that's what we do. Ignorance was bliss. How'd you come up with the title? I, I don't know, but you know, it, it's the, the, I, so I kind of know it's that there are a lot of things where we feel like I would, I could never do that. I could never understand that. I could never kill somebody. I would never rape somebody. I would never do all of these things. And I can make it really easily understandable how somebody got up, you know, out of bed one morning and ended up in the back of a police cruiser by the afternoon. Like that's pretty easy to do, but it's terrifying because it's real and it can happen to anybody at any time. It's just a matter of a couple of different choices and that could be you. And do you really want to know? And that's sort of my, you know, every, every episode I have an intro that I sort of free freestyle, I guess. And I basically talk at the microphone until I reach a point where I can say, are you sure you really want to know? Because the, the, you know, the implication being once you know, you can't unknow it. Yeah. It's like the matrix. Once you're out of the pod, knowledge is knowledge. You're going to go with it. <laughs> so ignorance was bliss and it's gone now. Now, you know, now you understand. Are you sure you really wanted to know this? I'm going to be nerdy on you for a minute. I did psychology for my undergrad degree and I really admired Hugo Munsterberg originally. And I was thinking about doing forensic psychology for myself, but I went into law instead. And I wanted to ask you who influenced you the most when it came to you pursuing your forensic psychology degree and why? Probably the FBI profilers as a okay. class, especially John Douglas, who okay. wrote the book Mindhunter that the Netflix series is based on. So I went to school for engineering, mechanical engineering was my major as an undergrad, and I'm pretty good at it, but I didn't find it engaging. I didn't like it, but it was certainly going to be a path that, first of all, it got me out of my house. Uh, my parents were, I was mentioning toxicity, like I have a nodding familiarity with that. And so I needed to be out of the house and a four-year degree in mechanical engineering means I'm going to get a job. That's what we'll do, I guess, whatever. And then my junior year, I got sick. I got a kidney infection. And so I was in the hospital. And this is back in the days, ye olde times, kids, where you had like paper books. And so somebody brought me the book, Mindhunter. And by this time, so I went, I went to school in northern New York. It's dark, 
all the time. It snows from October to May. Was that like Syracuse? Oh, no, no, farther north, way farther north, Syracuse. Syracuse is about an hour from where I grew up. Syracuse is three hours south of where I went to college. So it's, I mean, I I went to to school in Potsdam, New York. It's the closest cities are Ottawa and Montreal. I thought you basically were in Southern Canada. (laughs) Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I I, I say sorry a lot, you know, it's just, (laughs) and, and so... I, you know, it's dark all the time and engineers are a pretty socially unusual bunch. I'm trying to be diplomatic here. Like they're not, they're not empathic and expressive in a lot of ways. And I felt like that was pretty normal. And they, and they you know, when it being physically dark outside and their humor tends to be pretty dark, I was like, this is just normal and everybody hates everything all the time. We all hate our jobs. We all hate our school. We all hate everything. That's how it is. That's pretty normal. And then somebody brings me this book while I'm in the hospital and reading it. And I'm like, oh, he seems to actually like this job. Like, I could do this. This the, 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 this thing that he's talking about, I could do this. And so I and went from there. I dropped all of my, you know, I ended up taking a medical leave the rest of that semester. When I returned, I dropped all of my engineering classes and graduated as the only psychology major in my graduating class. And they didn't know what to do with me. They were like, uh, can we just make some classes up for you to take, you know? And I went on. I got master's degrees in criminal justice and mental health counseling. And then I went on and got a doctorate in clinical psychology. So why don't you go by Dr. Kate? I feel you like are. That, that's not what I'm here to do, though. OK, OK. I'm just I mean, saying. Like, No, that, I know I follow. It's, and it's, it's all respect I for that. Like, I say that to you because that's, that's a yeah, huge accomplishment. But I don't like it. Like, okay. I don't like the separation, like the, the doctor thing, it, it works to create a distance and a formality when you're in the courtroom. And even when you're in the exam room, when, it, when you're doing assessments, that kind of thing, it helps to sort of create a little bit of a separation that like, look, I'm not your therapist, you know, and I'm going to be asking you super invasive questions and you kind of have to answer them by law, you know, that's how it's going to be. And so that distance served its purpose. But when I started the podcast, I was like, you know, I don't want it to be an interview show where I'm like, I'm asking you questions and that's it. I wanted to tell my own stories and I wanted to bring my own self in to my show. And so I don't do the doctor. I also didn't, I, I practiced under my maiden name, not under my married name. And so I very deliberately have kept that separate. Like people are like, oh, you should put your show on LinkedIn. And I'm like, absolutely not. <laughs> You know what that sounds like? That sounds like me being the psychic lawyer that I do. And I've been a lawyer for 20 years and I've recently decided to pursue podcasting and being, you know, spiritual more. And during the last five years that I've been doing the psychic stuff and the podcasting stuff, my Jason Zook's a pseudonym as well. So that my professional life as a lawyer isn't disturbed by what I happen to do after hours, weekends, or any other time I'm passionate about this stuff. And I, I, I can appreciate your answer with that because it makes a lot of sense. You like to keep certain things in their own lane. Mm-hmm. And I'm always fascinated by true crime stuff. I'm, as I said, I did a, psych- a psychology and political science degree in college, but I was always gravitating towards true crime. I remember watching Silence of the Lambs. I was in high school at the time and I was 
fascinated by Clarice. And I her mean, character. I have that, that poster right? on like, my wall. <laughs> you and I are probably at the same age, Rachel. I'm not going to need to date that here, but I'll just say I was so excited and scared, super scared watching the movie for the first time many moons ago in the 90s, early 90s. But that left such an impression on me. If I hadn't gone to law school, I would have been going into forensic psychology. So I, I did look at going to law school. I looked at a couple of like side JD programs. Yeah. That's what I was going to do. I was going to do a side JD. Yep. That's what I thought about. But the thing is, I didn't want to do the law because for me, it's a lot of, as you know, it's a lot of politics and I'm not very diplomatic a lot of the times. I'm not very patient. And I, 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 I hate, I like a good debate when it's respectful, but that's difficult to come across. And I also really, really hate studying what old white men do. <laughs> Understood. So, well, and then for me too, the law is it's it's over regulated. It's cumbersome. If you want to try to be creative and be an attorney, it's not your forte to do. So that's why I'm pursuing other pastures for myself at this stage of my life. And I think everyone going through the last several years is probably wanted to increase their life as best as possible. And you've an example of that. You went from an injury to being on disability, to feeling like you were stifled with your voice for a while, to now creating this amazing podcast. Mm -hmm. And can you share with our audience your success for your show? Because I, I was impressed when you mentioned that off air. How many downloads oh, you have? Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I have crossed over 800,000. Congratulations. Not too long ago. I expect to roll over a million this summer sometime. How cool How cool does that feel like to you? Like, it's bizarre. Like it really bothers me. Like it's insane. Like, I, it, you know, and I, I have almost 400 episodes. I never released intending for somebody to listen to all 400. I thought, <laughs> you know, it's it's each one is standalone and it's meant for like you, you dip in and you dip out. If I talk to somebody that you are either personally interested in or you're like the topic, then cool, but skip it if it's not for you. And I'm, I try to be very upfront about like, okay, like my, the next episode I have coming out, we talk about grieving a fair amount. And so I, I oh. talk about that right in the intro. Like if this isn't your thing, skip it. No problem. You know, I'll be releasing another episode in like 20 minutes. You know, that's how I do it. <laughs> you know, cause I drop like two to three episodes a week. Typically that's how I keep up with talking to people quite a lot is you have to, you know, if, if I'm going to talk to a lot of new people, you have to shove out episodes frequently on the on the back end to stay caught up. And so I never when I, I hear people are like, oh, I listened to every episode. And I'm like, are you OK? I got to ask you this question. How about your family and close friends? You put this podcast out there. How have they have they listened to it? Do you talk to them about it or do you keep it completely separate? They don't listen. My, it depends on who who in the family. I think I define family a little more loosely than a lot of people in that I don't think genetics are all that crucial. So <laughs> I have family members, again, people that I, I consider family that listen. Meanwhile, the people that I live with, mostly no, mostly don't. My kids, my, my older two kids are 21 and 17. They've each been on a couple of episodes. Nice. And my husband appears whenever I do, whenever I hit landmarks. So it used to be every 100,000 downloads. Now it's like every 250,000 because I feel like I'm getting repetitive with it. Uh, I do an Ask Me Anything episode. And what I enjoy about that is that I have all of the questions sent to him. <laughs> so you get to ask them as if I, he's a listener. I don't hear any of them. I don't hear any of the questions until he asks me on mic. 
what was happening. So so people know him because they've heard him on the AMAs before. Boy, some some people ask me some things. Boy, do they. And that can be that's some of the fun of it is that you never know. Like sometimes they're asking me questions like what made you get into podcasting? Other times they're like, I I mean, I, I I've talked about my sex life on air. So, you know, things go in all kinds of ways. And it's just like, well, I think well, I wasn't prepared for that. I'll share this with you. And I'm sure you can agree with this. If you want to be a good host, if anyone's an aspiring podcast in the audience and listening to us talking, you have to have a level of being comfortable, being vulnerable and being able to open yeah. yourself up. Right. For and just be able to, like, because that's how people can relate to you. If you're sitting here, you're like, I've never been depressed and you really suffer from depression. You're being a hypocrite. You know, you got to be able to be real and, and let people see who you are in order to understand who they're working with in, 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 a, in a show. And I want to ask you this. When you look at what you used to do as a, as a forensic psychologist and you'd you know work with people in the, in the system, as you call it, the, the healthcare system or the, the mental health system or the criminal system, the skill sets you used as a forensic psychologist versus what you're doing now, it's a more creative aspect of your, of your brain, a more creative aspect of your life. How do you determine value for yourself now compared to what you did then? Because you're doing completely different skill sets. So, okay. So I would disagree that it's, that it's different. I, I, okay. I, I disagree that it is more creative now. Okay. I, I, the thing about being a forensic psychologist, first of all, it that sounds sexier than it is. Like it, it's not a, a, an exciting forensic psychology means you're doing assessments like you would do for anybody if they need to know a diagnosis or they need to know whether somebody is competent to stand trial. For instance, that's really straightforward. You know, competency to stand trial just means are you able to work with your lawyer? Not will you, but just are you able to? Are you able to understand right from wrong? Do you have sufficient self-control to be able to get through a trial? And do you understand the basic players in the court system? Like, do you know who the judge is and who your lawyer is? And that you shouldn't jump up and scream on your table during the middle of somebody else's testimony, right? And so that's a pretty simple thing. Like, you don't need a doctorate to do that, except that the court system says you need a doctorate to do that. So it's how it be. And so parts of that are really pretty straightforward, like not terribly creative in the way that with with podcasting, parts of it, like the editing process, can be pretty rote and pretty low bar and pretty just like you got to do things in a certain order, in a certain way, and plug away at it. And it takes time and it's not necessarily fascinating and sexy all the time. Like sometimes you're just clicking on the mouse and waiting to be done with the thing, you know? But then other times, the connection with the person, you have to be ready to roll with them and ready to... to, The phrase that we use is is that it, it can't be easy to shake your tree, right? That you have to be able to have a good poker face and to be able to to accept almost anything. My example is that whenever I did any assessment, and I did both forensic being inside a prison, and I also did crisis assessments in emergency rooms and that kind of thing. And you start with some basic, simple questions to try and crack the door open a little. What's your name? How do you spell it? What's your date of birth? And then it unrolls pretty quickly to the point of... I would ask the question of what brings you here today? And then you wait 
because some people will tell you what you expect. I'm here because I had a suicide attempt. I'm here because my lawyer said I had to talk to you. Something like that, right? Other people will say, an ambulance. Other people are in their 60s and will say, well, when I was in the second grade, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and you have to, no matter what they bring to you, no matter how they answer that question, you have to pick it up and roll with it as though they're saying exactly what you expected all along. And you have to absorb the information that they're giving to you and learn how to ask questions and how to make it how to make it go, you know? And so every time I'm talking to a new person, I have a fairly structured, which you'll find out, right? I have a fairly structured housekeeping list that I go through that helps sort of explain, here's the, the basic concept of what my show is and what you should be able to expect. Here's some questions that I need answered before we go. And then after that, I'm like, okay, we're going to hit record now and we're going to see what happens. And in front of me, I have a blank piece of paper. I don't have any pre-written questions. I don't have any agenda to it because we're just going to roll with it. It's the equivalent of doing a good assessment, except I don't have to testify in court or write up paperwork when I'm done. Less burdensome. <laughs> It's less it's it's less of a of being weighed down. I mean, I guess I agree when you were talking about editing our shows or our podcast episodes, like the the tail end of what we do after we do the, you know these episodes. It is a monotonous part of the podcasting part of it. I agree with you on that, and I, I like the way that you approach it from your background, but then this being able to differentiate it with what you're doing right now is where you 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 come to the table and you're like, I don't have to talk to you today like it's an assessment, like I'm going to have to testify in court. I'm here to find out what your story is. I want to find out about what, how do you tick? I want to decipher. <laughs> I feel like you decipher things and you're able to explain them to your audience really strongly. That, that's, that's the hope. That's the goal. Yeah. When you explain to people that you have done forensic psychology, do they generally understand what that is? Or is it something Not that you have to give them an explanation? I mean, always. People assume that that means profiling. It does not. I, I considered profiling. And, you know, because I was so sort of inspired to literally change my entire life based on one book about profiling. But so so during my master's degree, toward the end of it, I started interviewing with the FBI and I went through three rounds of interviews with them. And it's very structured and it's government, you know, so there's a lot of a lot of a lot of layers, a lot of waiting. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and and so I I decided the third so the third round is sort of the decision point and they were like okay look here's some things you need to know about this job and one is that you have to carry a gun you are a law enforcement official you have to carry a gun 24 7 and i was like i don't want to do that not a fan i i had my first child at 22 so this is around this time and so i'm thinking about like okay i don't want to be a cop any version thereof. I want to be home safe at night with my kid, you know, and I don't like the idea of having guns in my in my home. And then they were like, also, you got to travel. Like, first of all, you have to you have to work in one of the field offices as an FBI agent for about three years, sometimes longer. Then assuming you get into work with the behavioral analysis unit, now you have to travel like 48 weeks out of the year because 
you're not going to like there are no cities there's no place you can go in the US where they're going to have you know full-time employment of serial killers for you to profile which is probably a good thing right like you don't actually want to live there if that's the case <laughs> but what that means is i can't i had to choose between family and work and when it boils down to that it's pretty straightforward like i don't want to do that i don't want to i don't want to leave my kids home alone also full respect to profilers they are doing important work they're doing the best that they can like cutting edge but the problem is the cutting edge is kind of dull like it's not a very sharp edge because we don't actually know anything about serial killers the only thing we know is from the failures the ones who got caught right we don't know like there are tons of successful visual quotes successful serial killers still out there doing their thing we don't know anything about them we don't know how they're different from the ones who got caught we don't we're, we're not good i'm we're not good at predicting what the driver in front of us on the highway is going to do at any given time much less how somebody is going to function in a complex you know serial offender sort of way sure. and so i decided you know rather than spending my time stressing out about guessing wrong or missing something and generally making myself insane, I'm going to talk to them after they've been caught and try to understand more about what happened. Like, help, tell me your story. What, what, how'd you get here? Are you able to share any of the people that you've worked with that are in fact serial murderers or killers? Like, have you, have you had prior experience and what's been your, your, I, I do have experience. I can't name some of the serial offenders. I don't have a signed release for sure. them. There is, there are two specifically that have, they, they appear on frequent podcast episodes. And every time I listen, I'm like, Hmm, <laughs> like, you know, um, I do have signed releases for one case that I worked and this was more reevaluation, so I wasn't part of their initial trial. But for it, it, the case is called the Dartmouth Killers. Hoff and Susanna Zantop are were Dartmouth professors in New Hampshire, and these two kids, sixteen and seventeen years old, came to their door pretending to be doing an environmental like survey of sorts, and they they chose well. You know, they chose a, a professor that let them in and told them, like, you have to write your questions better and here's what you have to do. And the reality was they weren't doing any sort of survey. They were trying to break in so that they could kill people, take their pins and clean out their bank account and eventually make enough money to get to Australia. Instead, the kids were idiots because they're kids. And so they killed them before they got their pins. They got about $300 in cash and they made it as far as the Midwest and got picked up at a truck stop in, I think it was Iowa. I don't remember what state they got picked up in, but they got returned to New Hampshire. And so their names were Robert Tulloch and James Parker. And I spent time clinically with both of them. I don't talk about that part sure. on Mike, but I... I can talk about the, my impressions of both of them is that, you know, when, when two people, especially younger people offend together, usually one is the leader and one is more submissive. And absolutely Robert Tullock was the leader. He was a little bit older. He was taller. He was angrier and he was a scary guy. 
you know, when I when I got to know him, he was in his mid twenties and an intense presence to him. And I made him laugh one day because I, I did you do rounds. It, he was he's in solitary, the secure housing unit. And so you have to go door to door and do rounds and ask, do you want to talk to anybody for mental health? Because they're not allowed to just walk up and knock on my office door, you know. And he he used to pace like, you know, you know, in old zoos before they had natural habitats when everybody was just like in concrete bunkers and the, the big cats would pace back and forth yes. in their cages. That's what he would do in his, you know concrete bunker that he was in in secure housing unit and he just he just glare at me every time you know he'd tell me to f off or whatever and one day he's he he was listening to music this is in the days of like ipod nanos it were just coming out and it was just very early in the days of allowing inmates to have them and he was pacing and listening to something and i and i asked him one day i was just like what do you listen to he's like oh you wouldn't have heard of it and i was like try me <laughs> and he goes to be called the offspring and i'm like <laughs> is it and i don't remember now off off the top of my head what track number it was but it was like whatever the the the, the song keep them separated was it was like okay, track seven or something and at the time i knew what and so i was like oh huh how's track seven working out for you there because you were under 18 but Looks like you're doing time. And he <laughs> laughed like, you know, for a minute he glared at me still and he seemed, but then he la- he's like, nobody makes that joke. <laughs> and I'm like, not a joke, you know, like, see ya, you know, but, but it was just that connection for a moment of like, you're, you're a person and I get it. And I listen to the same music that you do. And, and that was one of those days where I, I drove home and I was, I put that, that CD a CD, it's this round thing that you used to listen to in the car, you know, and I listened to that on the way home and I was like, yeah, that's, can you imagine not, not believing that anybody else out there listens to what you listen to or not knowing who might or who might have that connection anymore. Jim Parker was in general population and was the follower of the two of them. And honestly, I would let him babysit my kids. Like he was a submissive kid. He got sort of, I don't want to say led astray because that, that makes it sound more deliberate on Tullock's part than I think it really was. I don't think either of them really got it. They didn't really understand the seriousness of what they were doing. And this is why the idea of minors being sentenced to life is problematic because they don't understand what life is. It goes against and, the whole concept of having a culpable mind if they're not able to understand. Exactly. And so, yeah. so I got to, I, I knew them. I have a signed release to talk a little bit about uh, Pamela Smart, who was only involved in one case, but she's, her story is the one that the movie in the, in the 90s, Nicole Kidman's in a movie called To Die For. And it's a, the high school teacher teacher's aide gets her 15 year old boyfriend to kill her 23 year old husband because Never. she didn't want to get a divorce. Was that in Florida? Uh, well, they weren't, they went to college in Florida, but it happened in New Hampshire. Okay. I also spent some time with Sheila Labar, who is a female serial killer also out of New Hampshire. And she is a scary individual. What's your impression of working with the different people we just talked about? In terms of 
a lot of people who think of serial killer, what they get from the media, the portrayal of how serial killers are in TV shows, movies, or news reports. And I want to ask you, because you have a very unique perspective, what's your perspective of what you think a serial killer is compared to the way it's been portrayed popularly in culture and in media reports and stuff? I mean, I think a lot of us think of a serial killer as we think we would know it when we see it, right? It, that we would recognize it. And any successful serial killer is going to fly under the radar. They're going to be incredibly normal seeming and boring unremarkable that's how they get away with what they get away with they i don't think we understand nearly enough about them because we're so quick to demonize them and we look for a mental health diagnosis an explanation and a lot of times they are as sane or more so than any of the rest of us what do you think causes them to kill a lack, I mean, the simplistic answer is a lack of empathy. They don't see other humans the way that you and I do. And I mean, I, I, I understand that on a, on a visceral level, both because I worked with them and they would explain like, they're, they're also off the people that I spoke to are, are kind of adrenaline junkies. And it took more for them to feel anything. And as far as emotion is concerned, they, they kind of had this feeling of like, well, who cares? Because I don't care, so therefore nobody cares. Like that sort of fundamental attribution error, I guess, to a degree of like, if I don't care about a thing, nobody cares about the thing, right? But also, more recently, and this is since I, around the time I went on disability and since, my, my youngest child, who is nine, is adopted from a trauma background. And she is effectively, in, she's a sociopath. In, in in a lot of ways, like she does not have empathy for other people in the way that we think of it, and that's a necessity for her. That's a survival skill for her from coming from the background that she came from and learning not to let people hurt her. And sometimes you can't prevent people from physically hurting you, but you can shut off your brain and your emotions to protect yourself in that way. And we got her at two. And so at two years old, she had already been so profoundly hurt by the people that were supposed to be taking care of her that she was able to shut off. And I think, I don't think able to, I, I, I don't think it's volitional. Like, I don't think she chose to have less empathy for others. I don't think she has that that choice in there, that it was just a survival skill. But she was hurt badly enough by age two that now she can't undo it. And so I live with it. And I see it all the time. And there's not necessarily, like, people, I think, assume that people who hurt other people are malicious. And I don't think that's necessarily the case, that they are acting, you know, because malice implies I want to hurt you. And I think it's more a lack of empathy of just, I don't really care whether you get hurt or not. I just want to get whatever I want to get out of this. I want to get the thrill. I want to get the insurance payout. I want to get the drug money. I want to get whatever it is. They're, you know, they, it's very transactional. Sure. Does 
Do you see the people you've worked with in the past, the disconnect that they have between the lack of empathy and their actual actions? Do you think that they have the capacity to develop empathy after the fact? I have not seen that. Okay. I mean, like if you look at with my kid, she's been living with a clinical psychologist and a my my cousin my husband is a college professor. Um, so a fair degree of student loans and <laughs> training in in things like developmental psychology and sociology okay. and, and that kind of thing. And she's been in therapy since before she came to us. And I mean, there was at one point in time where she and her biological mother had something like seven therapists assigned to the two of them because we didn't we, we were trying very hard not to adopt. In fact, we were, we were trying to just help get them on their feet and then off you go. And it just turned out that her biological mother was not willing or able to do that. And so between very highly educated people, my older kids are all empathic and you know resilient kiddos themselves. And and they're all significantly older. You know, I had kids like once every five years because <laughs> it takes me a while to forget yeah. how much work babies are and to think that's a good idea. Let's do that again. And so, you know, she just she's been surrounded by people that behave respectfully and with care since before she was out of diapers. And yet she doesn't get it. She doesn't get people in the same way and if that's the case then you look at someone who spent longer in overtly dangerous or traumatizing situations and was never surrounded with careful empathic love and training and 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 all of that why would they get better? Why would they do that? And, and there comes a point where you, your personality is who you are. Like your things get hardwired. And, sure. you know, are you going to cry at a Hallmark commercial? Like if you never have, what would make you start now? I actually do cry sometimes at Hallmark commercials. Depending and on I, I don't. That's another thing is that I tend to be sort of more compartmentalized with emotions. I'm not a crier. I tend to be more separated out. And I feel like that's okay. Like I, it, I think that the trick is that we need to spend less money on on law enforcement in general, and we spend, need to spend more money on early childhood education, on letting kids learn how to express their emotions, yes. l- letting uh, the adults around them recognize, hey, this is not a kid who's being a jerk just for jerk sick like all kids do sometimes but when it's the same kid and in the same ways all the time maybe there's something going on and we need to step in and not in a report them to dcf so that they get taken from their home but let's get eyes on this kid let's get some you know psychoeducation involved in this kid's life early on let's have structured classes if we're going to do physical education let's do mental health education classes as well and that's yeah, not so much <laughs> it's not exciting stuff but i think that's what we do to have less in the way of repeat offenders and i couldn't i couldn't agree with you more that we need more mental health everything out there right now i think we need to support our mental health professions and help 
our society destigmatize mental health so that we can better handle people who are dealing with personal issues or having their own mental health concerns. Mm -hmm. I appreciate you coming on and talking about these things because I, I love hearing about your background. It's very fascinating to me. I want to ask you this. What's your favorite part about being a sport, a storyteller? I think. So uh, I'll, I'm going to answer it with a story that <laughs> no very, a friend of mine who is a podcaster has been podcasting anonymously for very specific reasons. Like some of us do it just to separate our work lives from our podcasting lives or whatever, but he had a, 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 a whole extra level of stuff that, that were, it's, it is, it's, it's released on my podcast. I don't remember the episode number offhand. Uh, no, I lied. It's right. It's written in front of me. It's number 390 of my podcast. That's his story. And he was anonymous. He's been, he had been on my show two, not two times before under his sort of pseudonym. That he was using. And then he decided, you know, people know. I told enough people my real name and people in the podcast community, just like any community, there's talk, there's gossip, there's, hey, did you hear about so-and-so? And one too many people had kind of found out. And so it was, he was going to become public one of these days. And so he was like, you know, I, I'm ready to tell my own story and I'd, I'd like to do that. I'd like to take a little bit of ownership on it. And so he he did the same on my show and on a, another podcast. And he tells them in very different ways based on, you know, he's my, he and I are friends. I, I've met him in person and he stayed in my house. And so we we have a different rapport and I'm more earthy country I guess then no, definitely more earthy crunchy than the other host, but arguably more earthy crunchy than my friend is as well. The other host is a criminologist. And so criminologists are very different. They're, they're very much more about the study of the laws and the sociology of it and the really thinking in more black and white terms about the system. And they think about criminals as opposed to we're all just human here. They, they, you know, and so it's just a different, it's a different perspective. It's no more or less valid than what I do, but the other host is a criminologist. I'm a psychologist. And so for me, it's a more sort of, it's a softer sell in certain ways. And it's more like, tell me what this was like for you. And the other guy was more about, okay, let's talk about some of the really intense details of the crime that occurred that you were sort of a couple of steps removed from that ultimately got in the way of your your personal and professional life like let's really get into the dirty dark grisly details and i was like that is not ever going to be my style yeah and so that's what i love about storytelling though is that he didn't my friend didn't lie to either of us and he didn't make you know he didn't he didn't play up to either of us he just tells his story differently depending on who he's talking with and that's something that all of us do it's called image management it's not lying it's just that we behave differently at work or at school or at the PTA different or roles. on my podcast you know yeah different roles we're in 
Exactly. And so that's what I love is that you could tell me the same story every day for a week. <laughs> but because you're in a different mood or because I'm in a different mood or because the circumstances are different or I ask questions a little bit differently, you can end up telling me seven different stories and they're all true. Wow. I'd say that that's a big impact in terms of how stories are and our perception. I'm thinking about it this way. Stories date back. It's, in, it's inherent in our nature to be storytellers, right? Because before there was written history, we, we told everything orally by mouth. And we all like to be entertained. <laughs> and we all like to be afraid. And, and like think about sitting around the campfire as a little kid or something. You know, there's all that aspect of it. I want to ask you this. Going forward for yourself, where do you see yourself going after doing the podcasting and being forensic psychologist, like, where do you see your future for yourself? I mean, I, I, I don't see myself being able to work out of the house again. I would love to. I miss it terribly. But physically, you know, the, the, the jobs that I'm trained to do require a fair amount of walking and moving. And as you know, any sort of court appearance is a lot of sitting on uncomfortable chairs for a really long time. With inventions with no padding. And, you know, and, and I can't, I physically can't do that. Like I can walk around, I can move, but briefly, like I have a handicap tag for my car. So, you know, even the, even the government believes that this is, this is what it's at. I, I thought I would do like 20 episodes, kind of clear up some of the questions that people would ask and I'd be done. I never considered setting ignorance was bliss up in terms of like seasons or anything like that some weeks i release five episodes other times i go a month without and and that's all all that's the freedom say like it's the there, there's no rules in podcasting and so i i plan to continue it for as long as people are willing to talk to me this year i am starting a second show congratulations yes Summer time, late summer is, is my guess. We we had the Freedom of Information Act request accepted, and we're down to, I believe, the last uh, packet of paperwork that we're going to get. So this Freedom of Information Act is, you know, the FOIA request is is gives us the original handwritten police reports and wow. the court records and everything. And it's a case that nobody has covered. It's not been on any podcasts. It's not in any books. It's in a couple of little snippets of newspaper articles about a really awful murder that happened in Washington State in 1977. Wow. And it needs to be told. Like, I'm shocked that there's not attention to this. Like, it sounds like a horror movie set up, both in terms of what happened to the victim and then who did it and how she was discovered and in that sort of thing. So my friend Jacob and I are putting that together. And so that'll be the big project that's coming up next. I, I would love to have you come on when you're going to do that. When you're ready to launch, I'd love to promote it on our, on our show to your to sure. our audience. Cause I know there's a, a true crime following here as well. And for me, having you come on and talking about this topic area is very important for us to understand what goes behind these true crime situations and the people actually involved you're you're a person that's been physically involved in it you've made a living in terms of your dedication of what you do and i think you're a, an important mouthpiece out there to help explain in the trenches aspect of it because you've been there you can 
decipher these things. And I, I, I think this is so helpful for our society to get someone like you in front of the microphone and be able to explain your unique perspective. Cause I think that's so necessary. And I think that's why your show is so successful. And I'm so happy that we're able to connect and have you on today for us. So I thank you for coming on. I want to ask you if our audience wants to reach out to you, how can they, that's the best way for them to get a hold of you. Oh, I'm online all the time. I'm online way too much. Most Less and less on Facebook, although I am. Um, it's my my handle is at IWB Podcast, like ignorance was bliss. So my website is IWBpodcast.com. And I'm on Facebook decreasing amounts of time as Facebook gets more and more interested in censoring everything. And that's not my favorite. And so I'm on Twitter a little bit more, but really, you know, reach out however works. Yeah. And I have a TikTok that I rarely update, but it's sort of a how to start a podcast. So if people are thinking that they want to do that, I have kind of a how to on TikTok. And that's all that's up there is me talking at nothing for however many it is. It's like 30 little segments of how to start a podcast. What's your TikTok's handle? Same. IWB podcast everywhere. I just want to thank Kate for coming on the show today. What a fascinating interview. Having someone be able to discuss their experiences in real true crime situations as a forensic psychologist and story collector, having such a a fascinating background. I think when you listen to this episode, I want you to think about Kate's point of view, looking at stuff with mental health awareness and being able to understand that you could have things that happen in your life. You could be in a hospital undergoing an infection and have somebody bring you a book like Mindhunter. And that could shape your perspective and change your paradigm on what you want to do in your life. And then later on, you could have another event happen. Next thing you know, you're doing podcasting. I mean, fascinating stuff. Check out our information, iwbpodcast.com and the, the at symbol with IWB podcast on Facebook and TikTok. I just really had a great time talking to Kate today and look forward to hearing about her future success as time goes on. Ignorance was Bliss podcast. Check it out. Thank you so much, guys. The information will be in the show notes. Stay positive because when you're positive, anything's possible. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Social Psychic Radio Show. Don't forget to join us for another episode next time. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on iTunes. You can also check us out on Facebook and don't forget to visit the Social Psychic YouTube channel. Until next time, it's a big world out there. Keep an open mind, embrace your paradigms, and know that the universe is always yours to explore. With the Baker's Plus card, it's easy to get lower than low prices. For the win! Earn fuel points on every purchase and save up to a dollar a gallon at the pump. The Baker's Plus card. All you do is win. Big, big savings. Sign up now at bakersplus.com and start saving. Baker's. Fresh for everyone. Savings may vary by state. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your favorites with the buy five or more, save a dollar each sale. Simply buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with your card. Bakers, fresh for everyone. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement. Inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast.
there. I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast. Back to the arena, the interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock fan like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, the interview. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.